It's wonderful. All right, let's take our Bibles this evening. Let's go to Galatians chapter 4, okay? Galatians chapter 4 this evening as we're going through this book together on Wednesday evenings as you know this. But as you're turning there, I want you again, once again, to keep the overall bird's eye view in mind. And I hope, listen, I hope I don't bore you with the introduction stuff uh, such as that, all right? But I just think it's important when you come to the books of the Bible, as you study them and read them, I think it's important to keep the context, at least overall, initially, the context in mind. Because when you don't keep context in its proper context, you know what you get? Cults, that's what you get, all right? So we want to keep the Bible in its context. So keep in mind, well, the overall view, if you will, of what's going on here is Paul's writing to the people in Galatia. He's addressing the people in the region of Galatia, meaning there was many cities, many churches in this region, but he's writing to these churches and to these Christians for this main reason. There have been false teachers called Judaizers who have begun to creep into this area and in these churches. And these false teachers have begun to teach a false gospel. As Paul said, another gospel. They've begun to spread that false gospel to these people. And this is a false gospel of adding works to the finished work of Jesus Christ. Thinking that the law would generate some kind of uh, generate them to be more acceptable to God. But listen, that is not salvation. We do not find salvation through keeping rules or rituals. We do not find salvation through keeping the law. We find salvation in the Lord Jesus Christ himself. And we accept him by grace through faith. And his, his finished work through, by grace through faith. So he's, he's protecting, he's trying to defend the pure gospel of Jesus Christ. He's trying to defend the truth. So that's what Paul's doing in Galatians, the book of Galatians particular. So as we come to chapter number four, as we continue our study together, as we come here, keep in mind Paul is still bringing about his interrogations that he started in chapter, in chapter three. Uh, but in these chapters three and four, he's really asking different questions to uh, these Galatian believers. He's asking questions regarding uh, their faith in Christ, uh, regarding the teaching, uh, to, alluding to the teaching that the Judaizers have begun to infiltrate in these churches and into the hearts and minds of God's people in the region of Galatia. Uh, but he's doing this, asking these questions, he's doing this for a couple of reasons. Of course, the main one we've already established and have established is the main one is this. He's defending the gospel of Jesus Christ. But the second one is this. He, these questions he's bringing is for this reason as well. These interrogations should have done this. They should have caused the Galatians to stop and think. To stop and think about what they are believing. To stop and think what they were doing. Because understand, our beliefs are important. What we believe is very important. Our doctrine is highly important. You know why? Because our doctrine, our belief, determines our behavior. Therefore, we must, we must make sure our doctrine, our belief, our faith is right because it determines our behavior. All right? So that's what he's trying to do, trying to get them to stop and think about what they believe so they can stop and think about what they're doing. So let's look on here in Paul's instruction here in his interrogations, if you will, in Galatians chapter 4 and verse number 8. Galatians 4 and verse number 8. We'll read down through verse 14 tonight, all right? Verse number 8, the Bible says, How be it then, when you knew not God, you did service unto them which by nature are no gods? But now, after that ye have known God, or rather are known of God, 
How turn you again to the weak and beggarly elements whereunto you desire again to be in bondage? You observe days and months and times and years. I am afraid of you, lest I have bestowed upon you labor in vain. Brethren, I beseech you, be as I am, for I am as ye are. Ye have not injured me at all. You know how through infirmity of the flesh I preached the gospel unto you at the first. And my temptation, which was in my flesh, you despised not, nor rejected, but received me as an angel of God, even as Christ Jesus. Let's pray. Father, again, we come to you. The name above all names, the name of Jesus Christ. And I pray you to help us as we study these verses today in Galatians chapter 4 to have our faith deepened and strengthened. And help us, I pray tonight, to understand it a little better. And Lord, help me, I pray, to teach and to preach the word of God because I know without you, I can do nothing. So help us tonight, I pray, in Jesus' name. Amen. All right. So from this portion of Scripture, I would like to look at a couple of things. And the first thing I'd like for us to see, what Paul does at least, for these believers here in Galatia was this. Number one, Paul reminds them of their past. Paul reminds these Galatians of their past. Now, for many of us, for many people, many times we want to forget our past. How many know what I'm talking about? All right. You want to forget it. You want to forget your past. You want to forget the past mistakes. You want to forget the past blunders. You want to forget the past sins. You just want to forget the past and move forward. Many of us would agree to that. But understand, sometimes it can be good for us to remember the past. Not so that we can dwell on them and sulk in the guilt or sulk in shame or sulk in the sorrow of the past, but rather sometimes it's good for us to be reminded of the past so that, listen, so that we do not repeat the past. So we don't make the same mistakes. Now I'm sure you've heard this phrase before, but it's, uh, I don't know who said it. I don't know who came, who came up with this phrase, but I'm sure you've heard it, all right? But it goes like this. Those that fail to learn from history are doomed to repeat it. Anybody heard that? I'm sure you have. But it's so true. If you don't learn from history, you're doomed to repeat it. If you don't learn from the past, you're doomed to repeat it. If you don't learn from your mistakes, you're going to make them again. There was a wise man that said one day, he said, It's smart to learn from your own mistakes, but it's wise to learn from the mistakes of others. Therefore, be wise. Listen, we need to learn from past mistakes. Sometimes we need to be reminded of the past. And yes, sometimes even of the darkness and emptiness that we find in the past, why? So we don't go back there. So we don't go back there. And I believe Paul, at this very moment here, especially in verse number 8, is reminding them of the past. Look again at verse number 8. How be it then, here it is, when, when ye knew not God, talking about the past, what you were before, when ye knew not God, ye did service unto them which by nature are no gods. So what's the past that Paul brings up? Well, he don't go into any graphic detail, but rather more of an overall umbrella of this past, of their staunch, raw, nasty paganism that they're all involved in. He brings up their false worship and service of the many false gods that were ingrained in the people through their Greek mythology. You see, during this time, in the Roman era, paganism was ingrained in every single thing the people did. 
Take for instance, all right, as I was studying this up a little bit, what the people in, uh, under the Roman era or the Greek era would have believed, I was studying this a little bit. For instance, if you as an individual during this time wanted more money, if your love, if your desire was for things and money, then you would probably claim as your God, the God Pluto. And yes, we know that as used to be at least a, uh, a planet, right? But, uh, but the God Pluto. And as I've done a little more um, study on him as he was the God of wealth, I found it interesting that he was also referred to as the, or known as the God Hades, which is the God of the underworld, in which Hades is the Greek word for hell. <laughs> immediately when I read that and saw that, immediately to my mind, God brought these verses. 1 Timothy chapter 6, verse 9 through 10. But they that will, meaning that's their greatest desire on earth, their, their, their biggest won't, they that will be rich, fall into temptation and a snare into many foolish and hurtful lusts, which drown men in destruction and prediction. For the love of money is the root of all evil, not money itself, but the love of it, the want of it, the desire of it. The love of money is the root of all evil, which while some coveted after it, have erred from the faith and pierced themselves through with many sorrows. Immediately I thought of this verse as I'm thinking of these gods, these individuals in the, the Greek mythology in the Roman era would have, would have worshipped. But if you wanted money, this is the one you'd pray to. If you wanted wealth, this is the one you would worship. This is the one you would sacrifice to, the god Plato. But if you wanted more knowledge and wisdom, then you would probably go to the god or goddess Athena. If you wanted more uh, safe travels across the ocean, then you would worship the god Poseidon. If you were going into battle, you would worship the god Eris, and so forth and so on. There were dozens and dozens and dozens of false gods during this Greek time and Greek mythology. All I'm trying to say this evening is this. At this time, when Paul is referencing those gods, plural, they had many of them, and they were ingrained in everything that they did. Even Paul as he went into different cities in ancient Rome, in ancient Roman world, he would see temple after temple dedicated to these different gods. Paul saw this time in and time out. He saw this as he went to one city and as he went into another city. Even the Bible says this about Paul when he went into Athens one day in Acts 17, 16. says this, Now while Paul waited for them at Athens, waited for, uh, I believe it was Silas to catch up to him, waited for them at Athens, his spirit was stirred in him. Why? When he saw the city of Athens, a city wholly given to idolatry. That word holy means just swallowed up. They were just engulfed in everything about that city was engulfed in idolatry. The gods of that they worshipped, that's what he's trying to get across to them. But even after seeing the city wholly given in idolatry, Paul said this on Mars Hill in Acts chapter 17, verse 22 through 23. Then Paul stood in the midst of Mars Hill and said, Ye men of Athens, I perceive that in all things you're too superstitious. For as I passed by and behold your devotions, I found an altar with this inscription, The unknown God, whom therefore ye eagerly worship, him declare I unto you. And then, of course, Paul goes on to give the gospel on the sermon on Mars Hill. You see, they had so many gods, they were afraid they were going to leave one out. And so what did they do? They had an altar to the unknown God, if we missed one, here's yours, basically kind of thing. Listen, these people were superstitious. These people were, were worshiping all kinds of gods because it was ingrained into, their, into everything about them, into their world, into their life. They were pagan with multitudes of gods. 
But could it be, as I was, I was thinking this and reading this, could it be, as Paul is writing this portion of Scripture, and especially verse 8 here, when, he's, when he talks about, albeit when you knew not God, it is service unto them which by nature are no gods. Could it be, when he's writing this, that he had this event in mind when he came to the area surrounding Galatia? It could be this. In Acts chapter 14, verse 8 through 18, let me read it to you. And there, was, there sat a certain man at Lystra, impotent on his feet, being a crippled from his mother's womb, who never had walked. The same heard Paul speak, who steadfastly beholding him, perceiving that he had faith to be healed, said with a loud voice, Stand upright on thy feet. And he leaped and walked. And when the people saw what Paul had done, they lifted up their voices, saying in the speech of, uh, of Laconia, The gods are come down to us in the likeness of men. And they called Barnabas Jupiter and Paul Mercurius because he was the chief speaker. Then the priest of Jupiter, which was before the city, brought oxen and garlands unto the gates and would have done sacrifice with the people, which when the apostles Barnabas and Paul heard, they heard of it, they rent their clothes and ran in among the people, crying out and saying, Sirs, why do these things? We also are men of like passions with you, preach unto you that ye should turn from these vanities unto the living God, which made heaven and earth and the sea and all things that are therein. Who in times past suffered all nations to walk in their own ways. Nevertheless, he left not himself without witness that he did good and gave us rain from heaven, fruitful seasons, filling our hearts with food and gladness. And with these sayings, scarce restrained they the people that they had not done sacrifice unto them. Listen, after the healing uh, and after the preaching of, of Paul, the people were so impressed in that moment in Acts 14, so impressed that they thought Paul and Barnabas or some of the Greek gods come down incognito, meaning they thought that they were the gods come down in human form, which in Greek, sorry, Greek mythology, in that teaching and belief, they would say that the gods would periodically do that for fun and for sport and even pleasure. So they thought that these were gods come down. So they thought Barnabas was Jupiter, at this time, Jupiter would have been considered the father of the gods, which was also Zeus, all right? Maybe they thought he was, he was Zeus because, well, it could have been Barnabas was bigger in stature. It could have been that Barnabas was a bigger man. Then they looked at Paul and said, no, this is, this is Mercury because Mercury was the messenger god. Maybe they gave that title to him because Paul's persuasive speaking. We don't know exactly. But we do know this, they worshiped many gods and Paul is simply reminding them of that again look at Galatians Galatians 4 8 Howbeit then when you knew not God ye did service unto them which by nature are no gods Paul was wanting to remind them of their false gods and that memory listen this memory should have reminded them of a time when they were empty it should have reminded them of a time they were empty from these false, man-made, listen, even demonic gods. Reminded them how these gods did nothing for them. Reminded them of the void that even their service to these gods left in their hearts and left in their lives. It should have reminded them of the darkness and deadness and even fakeness of this false religion that they're all involved in. It should have reminded them of this. And in that memory of that emptiness, it should have also reminded them of what they used to do. Even in service to these gods, as Paul says in verse 8, the service they did. 
Now, what was the service that they would do? As a curious mind like mine would ask, what would be one of the services that they would give or perform or do for these false gods during this time? Well, there's a variety of ways, a variety of services, if you will. Of course, giving of their possessions, uh, sacrifice, even as we read in in Acts chapter 14, the, the, the priest of Jupiter was going to sacrifice, right? And that would be animal sacrifice, and yes, even human It's gross, it's terrible, it's bondage, but that's what they would do. But every time you come to do service to one of these gods, that always, almost every time, involves some sort of immorality, some sort of fornication, some sort of lewdness, some sort of adultery, and I'm putting it very lightly when I say those words, all right, but they're very lewd and crude in their service to these gods. History record for us that such a God would be worshipped that way would have been the goddess Aphrodite in the New Testament. One commentator said this about that God, the most offensive and immoral behavior was conducted in her honor. Vileness of every kind was elevated to an act of worship. Her temple was served by scores of sacred priests and priestesses. And it would be these priests and priestesses that would give their bodies as an act of service to any quote-unquote worshiper that would come to the temple for to worship. So understand, at this time, <clears throat> these priests and priestesses, as their service to this God, these, these gods, especially this one, their service would be this, forgive me, all right? I don't know of a better term that would be uh, fitting in this setting, but they'd be nothing less than a prostitute. That's what they would be. And even the prostitutes at the time would claim this goddess as their patron. <laughs> I can't imagine I can imagine this, fathom this, that people would do service to these gods like this. But Paul, look, when he's writing this and says this in verse number 8, he's simply reminding them of their past, of how they served these gods who were no gods. That's what they used to do. He's reminding them. He's reminding them again of their godless days. And this memory should have lit a spark in their hearts, knowing knowing where they were when God found them, knowing how far they had gone and yet how far truly they have come after trusting Jesus as their Savior. This should have, this should have sparked a, a memory of how good, listen, good God has been to them. The truth set them free. It should have sparked that in their hearts and lives. It should have sparked their memory how God saved them. It should have sparked that memory. So before we go to the next point, I want you to understand that every now and then it's good for us to remember. That's why I asked you at the very beginning, how old were you when you got saved? It's good to remember every now and then where God has brought us from. So sometimes just stop and think about where you used to be, where, where God found you. Uh, maybe the sin and lewdness, whatever you fill in the blank, that you might have been involved in. Think about it back then. Think of the past every now and then because it'll spark a memory of God's grace and mercy and forgiveness and power in your life. At least it should. So sometimes it's good to pause and to remember where God's brought you from. Now, you may be here this evening as well and you say, well, look, Pastor, I was saved at an early age. And I don't remember all of the debauchery and stuff. I never really got involved in any of that. Well, you need to stop and thank God you never did. 
We always have something to thank God for. And thanking people are thankful people. So don't forget. Don't forget where you came from. It's all right to look back to the past every now and then and thank God where he brought you from. So I believe Paul, he's trying to get them to think, look, do you remember where you, <clears throat> where you were? Do you remember where God brought you out of? Do you remember when you did service to these gods that were no gods? Do you remember that? He's reminding them of the past, and then he reminds them of this. Number two, the present. He, he brings them back to the present, all right? So after reminding them of the past, where they were, after bringing up their darkness, after bringing up those false gods that were no gods, he brings their attention where they currently are presently. And, and, and the first thing he brings up in their present condition is this. Number one, the decisions they're making. He brings up their decisions they're making. Look at verse number nine. But now, after that you have known God, he's bringing them back to the present. After you've known God, now, but now, after that you've known God, or rather are known of God, how turn ye again to the weak and beggarly elements whereunto you desire again to be in bondage. Now in verse number nine, I want you to highlight this phrase where it says, how turn ye again. Uh, this verb here, turn ye, is, uh, is, in, is a phrase that's in the present and continuous tense. What does that mean? All right, that means this. That at this very moment, as Paul is writing to them, they were in the very act of turning away. They were in a very moment or very act of turning back, turning back to the very enslavement that they once experienced when they were in the paganism that they were involved in. They were in the presently in that moment making that decision to turn back to paganism or turn back, rather, away from God. Now, they were not turning back to paganism as they knew it, though, as, the, as in Greek mythology paganism. That's not what they were turning back to. It wasn't a decision to go back and worship Zeus or Jupiter or Mercury or any of those other false Greek mythological gods, but rather the decision they were making at this moment was, was this, to turn back away from the freedom they have in Christ, away from the faith they have found in Jesus, the truth they have in God, turn back from that and put themselves under the law. And this act, this decision infuriated Paul, upset him greatly. And you can see that in some of the adjectives he uses to describe the decision that they are making. And you can see those here in verse number nine, all right? And when he says this, but, after, but now after that ye have known God, rather known of God, how turn ye again to the weak and beggarly elements? So he says, he says you're turning to something that's weak. Here, this word weak carries the idea of something that's, that's powerless or feeble. And the illustration uh, for this word uh, can be found easily in the word of God. And one that I picked is this, in Acts chapter 3 and verse number 4. It is there you can find where the, uh, uh, the uh, lame man was at the gate, remember at the gate, beautiful, beautiful gate, uh, begging for alms and during the time of prayer. And as he came here, Peter and John went up as well to that temple. The Bible says this in Acts chapter 3, verse 1 and 2. Now Peter and John went up together into the temple at the hour of prayer, being the ninth hour. And a certain man, here it is, lame from his mother's womb was carried, whom they laid daily at the gate of the temple, which is called Beautiful, to ask alms of them that entered into the temple. 
Listen, this lame man, this man who was not able to walk, was laid at this gate every single day at the hour of prayer, hoping to pull in the heartstrings of these people coming in for prayer, all right? Just to get a little alms, just to make ends meet, just to get a little food in his belly, just to get a little help. So that tells me this lame man, understand, was very much powerless. He was helpless. He could not take care of himself. He could not help himself. He was dependent on everyone else around him. He was powerless. And as Paul is thinking of these individuals turning away from God and back to the law, he is describing them as weak or that decision as weak and powerless because such was the religion of the legalistic Jews called Judaizers at this time. That was powerless. The legalism that they were trying to give across, the okay, fine, trust Jesus, but do all these things you really want to be right with God, that legalistic attitude, with that type of religion, he was telling them, listen, that is powerless, that is helpless, that is weak at best. It's terrible. You're turning back to something weak. You're turning back from something that brought you out of darkness and unto his glorious light. But you're turning back to that darkness that's weak, it's powerless. Why are you doing that? But then he uses this word to describe it, what they were doing, that decision. He says this, beggarly. Now, this word carries the idea of being destitute, to be in want. It would describe someone who is poor. Now, when we say poor here, I'm not talking about American poverty, okay? Because even the poor people in America are still very rich in most of the world. But I'm talking about actually poor in the true sense of the word, meaning you have nothing, nada, nilch nothing. <laughs> poor. You're so poor you have no idea that when your next meal will come or if you're going to even have one. And you're just, the, the best thing you have to do is just simply beg for mere crumbs. That's what this word beggarly means. And you kind of get a good picture of this when you, in the word of God as a good illustration when you look at Luke chapter 16 and verses 20 through 21 especially. But it's in Luke chapter 16, that moment where you see Lazarus and the rich man. But what did Lazarus do? He was always begging for crumbs that would fall from the rich man's table. He was begging for scraps that the rich man would throw in his trash can at night. He would beg for those scraps. Why? Because he was so poor. Couldn't even afford to buy scraps. The Bible says this in Luke 16, 20 through 21. And there was a certain beggar named Lazarus which was laid at his gate full of sores, desiring to be fed with the crumbs which fell from the rich man's table. Moreover, the dogs came and licked his sores. Listen, this is the word picture. This, this beggar, this is, this is what that means, what they're doing, turning to this, turning back away from God. You're putting yourself as a pauper again, as a poor individual again. If you're going to turn to follow the Judaizers and follow the law, you're just desiring crumbs is all you're doing. It's almost like a grown adult turning from eating, eating, let's say, what's a good thing to eat? Ooh, ribeye. Oh, oh, now on the count of three, tell me how you like your steak cooked. I'm going to find out if you actually like steak. All right, on the count of three, it's, tell me what you like, all right? It's, it's either raw, gross, or rare, that's good. Medium rare, perfect. Medium, medium well, or burnt. All right, so on the count of three, tell me which, how you like it. One, two, three. <sighs> some of you like steak, some of you just like steak sauce, all right? But, uh, but anyway... It'd be like somebody who likes steak and he likes it medium rare. I'm talking like just barely, just barely cut the horns off and just one minute, one minute and put it on your plate kind of thing. From eating meat, 
going back to eating baby food. That's what it is. He said, you're, you're becoming a pauper if you're doing that. You're, you're begging, man. This is terrible. You're turning away from the truth, turning away from something that's strong and powerful to something that's weak and powerless. That's what they're doing. Trying to find some kind of fulfillment, but not finding it at all. Because it's the weak and beggarly elements that they're turning, turning to. But understand this decision they're making is a decision, this is profound, that they are making. This is a personal decision on their part to put themselves back under a religious system that was powerless, useless, and poor, as if they were going back to the old powerless and poor pagan gods. He's making a comparison between the two. That's what he's saying here. So for them to turn back to the weak and beggarly elements would have been crazy, no doubt. But it had been their decision to make. Do you know that we too have to make decisions every single day? We have to make decisions to follow God. We have to make decisions to obey Him. We have to make those decisions. But let me ask you this evening, do you make that decision? Every day. The Bible says this in Luke chapter 9, verse 23. And he said to them all, If any man will come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross daily, and follow me. Listen, to serve God, to serve the Lord, is a decision we all must make for ourselves. No one can make it for us. No one can make us do anything. We must make that decision ourselves. No matter how bad you, you may want somebody else to do it or bad you want somebody else to serve God or live for God, you can't do it for them. You can't make them. They must do it themselves as well. Look, I wish I could make some people serve God. <laughs> I wish I could make some church people serve God, all right? But we can't. All we can do is, yes, encourage them. Yes, point them in the right direction. Yes, help them towards, towards the right decision. That's all we can do is help them, but we can't make them. Even in this portion right here, I believe Paul, he, he, even the, the, listen, the, with a big old T-H-E, the apostle Paul could not make these guys do the right thing. They're making this decision on their own. But in this moment, he's trying to turn them, trying to point them the right way and make the right decision but nonetheless it's their own decision and for us today to serve God to live for him do what's right is our decision and we should do that whether others do or not we must make those make those decisions personally so make the decision today and every day that you're going to serve the Lord serve God follow him make that decision because it's your decision to make make that decision all right, so we see this in the present moment. He's pointing out their decision. Number two, quickly under that point, he's pointing out their desire. Now look at verse number nine again. But now, after ye have known God, rather known of God, how turn ye again, here's your decision, why are you doing this? How turn ye again to the weak and beggarly elements whereunto ye, here's that word, desire again to be in bondage. Uh, maybe this is why they made the decision to turn again in the first place, because of their desire. Now, this word desire here carries with it this. It carries more of a, an emotional element, uh, more of an impulsive element. And we all know, listen, hey, you with me? Don't fall asleep yet, all right? 
We all know that when it comes to emotional decisions, when our emotions run high, when we're more emotional in the moment, we have a tendency to be more impulsive in our decision making. How many of you know that is the truth? Hey, man. All right. Absolutely it is. Absolutely it is. Take for instance, all right? Take for instance, you're going to the car lot to find and buy a new car or truck, okay? For me, it'd be a truck, all right. But you're going to go get a new vehicle, and you find a vehicle that you love. Oh, my goodness, it's your favorite color. On a count of three, tell me your favorite color of your, of your vehicle. One, two, three, silver, cool. So anyway, it's your favorite color. And, and you open the inside, and the interior is just, I'm talking about plush, Everything is nice, has a new car smell. You could just sleep in it that night, you know. It's just so, so awesome. And here comes the salesman. Oh, you like that vehicle, do you? Let me tell you some details about this hot rod, this thing right here. It goes 0 to 60 in 1.3 seconds. Oh, yeah. And it gets 93 miles to the gallon. Oh, yeah. And it can tow 10 tons and a bunch of other lies he gives you, all right? But after seeing that color, seeing how plush it is on the inside, hearing all those lies by the salesman, oh, you're stirred up, man. You're like, yeah, I like what I'm seeing. I like what I'm hearing. Sold. And you go in and sign your life away, and you find out it wasn't as cherry as you thought it was. But you made an emotional and impulsive decision. Why? Because, man, it, it looked good. Man, it... it Oh, it sounded so good. And I just had to have it. My heart desired that vehicle. That's the point or the word that Paul's using here to try to get across to them how they're making this decision. This desire they have, a decision they're making is going hand in hand. So as I think of that, I think of this desire, I think of this decision, listen, that tells me in the overall context again of these Judaizers, these guys were good. Man, they were good. They were good at speaking, good preaching. Maybe they had great personalities. Their ideologies may have sounded so nice. They had the best zeal. They were the best public speakers. I mean, they could probably have you crying one minute, laughing the next. They knew how to really work it up. They were silver tongue, no doubt. The ority was, was their, their, their best gift about them. Man, they could really speak. But understand, no matter how good they may have been in their preaching or even in their charisma, listen, if they're wrong, they're still wrong. And these Judaizers were wrong. I like what John Philip said about these Judaizers in this text, in this moment. He said this, speaking of the Judaizers, they were persuasive men, armed with telling arguments and with a host of Old Testament texts which to back them up. And people were fascinated by forceful personalities and who were themselves unskilled in biblical hermeneutics. These legalizers offered something that many people found desirable. Here it is. Determined leadership and no nonsense rules by with which to live. He goes on to say this. Many people do not like freedom. They find it difficult to make decisions for themselves. They like to be told what to believe and what to do. That is why leaders with charm and charisma can easily find a following no matter how weird and even outrageous their teachings and calls may be. People, after all, tend to be like sheep, following anyone who will take the lead. As you look at our world today, and even in so-called churches today, you have to agree to that statement. 
People will follow the charisma. They'll follow the pizzazz. They'll follow the glitter and sparkles and fogs, machines and lights and everything else. They'll follow it. Why? Because it stirs them up. Just because something gives you an emotional high or emotional drive does not mean it's right. Does not mean it's right doctrine. Does not mean it's of God. But these believers at this moment, they're making the decision why? Because they were driven by this emotional-led desire, by these personalities of these false teachers come from Jerusalem called Judaizers. And you can see they were following that because in verse number 10, he tells them their deeds. He says this, ye observe days and months and times and years. He says, I know what you're doing. I used to do those things too. Remember, Paul was a staunch Jewish man. He was a Hebrew of the Hebrews, a Pharisee of the Pharisees, remember? He used to follow days, months, and years too. He used to follow those, those days and think that he was gaining some kind of favor from God and doing God's service by doing these things. But in the end, he still knew in his heart that was just empty, worthless, powerless, weak, beggarly things. And so these individuals, as they're turning from the truth of God back to these things, even Paul himself knew so very well, no wonder he said, man, it's weak. It's beggarly. Don't, don't do it. Don't do it. Don't let this emotional driven teaching by these Judaizers push you away from God, push you away from the truth, and turn you back to bondage. Don't do it. Don't do it. Don't turn away. Don't turn away from God. Don't turn back. So Paul, in this moment, as again, he asks questions, interrogating them. He's just simply reminding them of the past and showing them of their present with their decisions and, and with their desires. Look, don't let those things uh, sway you from the truth and to turn back. Don't forget where God brought you from and don't go back there. It may, be, it may look a little different, smell a little different, but it's all the same. Don't go back. Stay true and stay in the truth and follow.